Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. It's time to pre-order my new book. Comes out on Tuesday. It's called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, very much on point with everything that's happening in the news and online today. In today's podcast, a behind-the-scenes chat about this week's upcoming full measure, November 22nd on Sunday. But first, I'm going to talk about media coverage in the aftermath of the 2020 election and double standards. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I have a lot of thoughts about how the media at large is covering the aftermath of the 2020 election. And a couple of points I thought I'd make before we talk about this week's upcoming episode of Full Measure. First of all, as you have no doubt seen, nearly everybody in the news, and I'm not just talking about analysts, but also reporters and news outlets are taking sides in the dispute over whether there was perhaps misconduct in the 2020 election as to whether there should be challenges, should they be heard, how long should they go on, what's the evidence show. Well, I ask the question, what's the journalistic benefit to taking a side on an issue like this? Not long ago, this is something that Most news organizations would not have thought about doing, having their hard news reporters take a side, cheer on one or criticize the other, or tell the American public what course of action they think somebody ought to take or not take. They would not have suggested putting their own opinions, injecting them into the news by saying it's unpatriotic, for example, or treasonous for President Trump to challenge the results. They would not have thought just a couple of years ago of inserting their opinions to say that it's unreasonable to challenge the election and that the president should concede. And this is something that's so commonplace today. I really think our children may never remember a time when the news tried to sort of play it straight down the middle or at least hear from both viewpoints now. It seems as though they think the reason people watch the news is to be told what they ought to feel, what they ought to think, who they ought to support, rather than providing information or presenting various viewpoints and letting people make up their own minds. 
So this is a huge change, and I write about that in my new book, Slanted, as well as in my past books. What's the journalistic benefit to not hearing both sides or representing both sides or treating both sides as if they have some measure of credibility until we know otherwise? What's the benefit to the public confidence for the media to be overtly taking a side? Remember, there are tens of millions of people, according to polls or surveys, who do not trust what happened in the 2020 election. And rather than let it play out and let the challenges that are appropriately handled in court, for example, rather than let that play out, what's the benefit to news reporters and news outlets taking a side in advance and telling people what they think should or shouldn't happen? The public already lacks confidence in the system, but when they hear the press taking a side rather than representing both viewpoints, that only adds to the mistrust. It doesn't subtract from the mistrust. It doesn't really make people accept that things were handled on the up and up, quite the opposite. I think sometimes when people watch and see the news taking a side, they feel like maybe the news is in on it. It does the opposite of what the reporters are trying to do. Along those lines, let's take a look at how most news reports that I've seen have handled the claims or accusations that there may have been improprieties in the election. There's been sort of this universal claim that there's no evidence of it and a demand that evidence be presented to the news reporters and that the evidence must meet whatever bar a particular news reporter decides must be met. Journalists used to seek the evidence themselves. Journalists used to be the ones that would go on the ground and regardless of how maybe they personally wanted an election to turn out, would have investigated the facts and approached an election like this, which was conducted with methods and rules and changes as never before in American history. Journalists would have approached this a few years back with rational journalistic skepticism on the lookout for any kind of fraud or abuse or incompetence. We should have been primed to do this, to look for potential fraud on the ground. We should have been dispatching our political reporters and those who cover elections to the swing states, to the places where the votes may be close, to the places where there are routinely, quite frankly, allegations of voter fraud and impropriety. We should have been primed for this because we were told in 2016 that Russia interfered in our election. We were told that this was going to happen again, or at least Russia would try again in 2020, that China has tried and would try again, as well as other foreign actors. We also know for a fact that domestic bad actors, including some inside our own government, attempted to interfere and did interfere in politics and election-related matters in 2016. We know for a fact there are allegations of FBI officials acting improperly, we know, according to investigations and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, that many wiretaps, all the ones that were reviewed, in fact, in the face of improprieties, didn't follow the proper methods. And one of those wiretaps was against a Trump campaign associate, Carter Page. All of this mischief surrounding 2016, and nobody held accountable, oddly enough, before 2020 and all of that. So we as reporters should have been primed for that as well, looking for potential domestic bad actors in addition to the foreign bad actors. And instead, oddly enough, 
This election comes off in an unprecedented way, as I mentioned, with rules changed and rules that were never before implemented, with absentee ballots and non-in-person voting, mail-in ballots on a scale never before seen, and political reporters and the media and those who cover elections almost universally seemed completely unskeptical and uncurious about all of this, as if it would just all go off without a hitch. There'd be nothing to see, nothing to examine, nothing to look at. And in fact, almost immediately, when there were videos and allegations showing that in some places, for example, Republican observers were not allowed to see what was going on when there were trucks that pulled up in the middle of the night, according to testimony and now sworn affidavits, with votes that appeared to suspiciously go one way, instead of saying as journalists with the proper rational skepticism, instead of saying there may be something to look at, let's take a look, many journalists just said, there's no evidence of this. Where's the evidence? As if the evidence was going to walk up, knock on the door and present itself. And as if the allegedly guilty parties were going to confess to the journalists, here, I did it, I did it, here's the evidence. And oddly enough, journalists were acting as though anything short of that proved that nothing had happened. And when one side, Trump supporters, would make any sort of claim of improprieties, it was treated as though it were a ridiculous claim with no merit, false on its face. And then journalists would go to the accused parties or the officials in the state or county. And when those officials would say, no, there was no cheating or abuse or sloppiness, Reporters would treat that as though it proved nothing had happened, treating very differently claims on one side and claims on the other, one presumed to be a lie on its face, the other presumed to be a truth on its face. Instead, journalism seems to me should require that we present the allegations of the claims in the most rational way it's presented to us and then go to those who are accused let them make their case for why they say it's not true, if that's what they say, and also search for our own independent evidence, not just wait for somebody to present us with the evidence that would make us believe what they're saying. I liken it a little bit to somebody saying that they had been robbed or cheated or perhaps somebody being killed, and this case goes to court, and instead of prosecutors and police investigating these allegations— or even the media investigating them, they all look at the victim and just say, prove it. The victim doesn't have access to the materials and information many times that would be necessary to prove these things. In this case, if it's true that observers could not see what was going on as they were supposed to be allowed to see, how would anybody know what really happened, including the media? The media can't possibly prove or claim that no fraud occurred or that no sloppiness or mistakes occurred. That's impossible. The media was not there firsthand to watch. That's the point. But I want to back up a little bit and talk about how narratives came into play before the 2020 election. I'm always on the lookout for narratives and how political players and corporate interests are behind the scenes, pulling our strings in the news media with their talking points, using, as I described in the smear, what I call the smear industry, to manipulate public opinion and shape what we talk about. I'm talking about PR firms, crisis management firms, political action committees, nonprofits, 
journalism watchdog groups, you name it. They're all in on the game of manipulating and shaping public opinion and the news in ways that are usually unseen to the end user. Where does this come into play in 2020? Well, I was watching some months back when we were being primed by people who were trying to normalize something that would happen on election day and right afterwards that's actually very abnormal. But they prepped us to be prepared for the abnormal so that we would accept it. What do I mean by that? Well, remember some months back, we started to be told on news programs by analysts and pundits and reporters who then just started to accept it and parrot it. We were told that Trump and Republicans would appear to win on election day, but that as the votes were counted and came in afterwards, that Biden would win and Democrats would win. They even had a name for it. They called it the Red Mirage. Now, somebody thought that up in a room. This is not something that organically was thought up on the spot by one analyst. This is something that was put out there, in my view, based on my experience and how narratives work. And the press, as it often does, uncritically picks up the narrative instead of examining who might be wanting us to think this and report this and why. They disseminated it so that when the odd thing would happen, when something that's never happened before in history would happen, that Trump or a presidential candidate or a president would appear to win overwhelmingly on election day and then find hundreds and hundreds of thousands of votes whittled away until he's actually losing over the course of the next day or couple of days. We were primed to accept that as normal rather than look at that with rational skepticism as it deserves. It doesn't necessarily mean that what happened was some sort of fraud or something improper, but it's certainly the way a logical journalist would look at things, all things considered. But again, smart people in the business of propaganda, in my view, primed us to be ready to accept what would look very strange. And they were so clever at doing it that when it happened, we simply said, yeah, we knew this was going to happen. That was what was supposed to happen. There's nothing to see here. Now, there is an exception to the narrative that they seem to prime us to accept. Trump's opponents primed us to be ready for the election, they said, not to be settled for days, weeks, or even months. People were even saying, might not be settled by Christmas. Remember that? Leading up to the election for months, they were saying that. Be ready not to know the results. Again, as if that would be a normal thing. Nothing suspicious here. Nothing to question. Clearly, it seems to me they were expecting that Trump would be on top in those early days, but that it would be close, and that Biden would be challenging. And they were priming us, in my view, to not accept the apparent Trump win, to let Biden challenges in close places play out in court, even if this took a long, long time. But once it turned out that Biden flipped the script pretty quickly, the media began demanding that Trump immediately concede. What happened to the narrative that was put out by both Democrats and Republicans that this would take a long, long time and we should be ready and we should be patient? All of a sudden, universally, many in the media saying Trump needs to give it up. The same people in many instances who told us to be prepared for a long, hard slog. 
So again, I look at this unprecedented election with unprecedented rules, a lot of suspicious things happening, with warnings going in that the Russians, the Chinese, and we all know perhaps domestic bad actors could try to come into play. Not just the Biden camp, you can also think as a rational reporter that the other side might try to influence the election in ways that aren't proper. The point is we as reporters again, should have been on the ground, ready to look at these claims, to find evidence ourselves rather than demand that it be presented to us and be proven to us. We should have been ready to cover this election, in my view, a bit more skeptically, to hold back on pulling the trigger on calling it, because I just don't see how that really benefits anybody except, in this case, the Biden camp. But I don't think it benefits the public confidence in the ultimate result. I don't think it benefits the media And I don't think it's the journalistic way to cover something. I don't think it was necessary to take a side, to jump the gun and try to pretend to have an answer much more quickly than it was necessary to have an answer. And I can't help but notice the irony after having written about these sorts of things for the past few years, the irony that the media looks at what has been presented so far in terms of allegations by people, sworn affidavits and videos, Some of them, as I've reviewed, from credible-seeming people, people in some cases who are attorneys, a Democrat observer, talking about evidence of fraud in some places. You look at that evidence, and the media says, there's nothing to see here. That doesn't prove anything. That's not evidence. Give it up. But you go back, and some of these same people, for three years of the false Russia collusion theories with anonymous sources, no evidence at all. In fact, what evidence was posed turned out to be, in some cases, false, manufactured, fabricated, and wrong. How easily that was accepted and forwarded as if it were true. It starts to look as though when one side makes an accusation, no matter how weak and flimsy and false the accusations are, it's accepted. But when the other side makes an accusation, The bar is lifted so high that there's nothing that side can do to convince the media that they have a credible argument or perhaps a credible claim. This is the very sort of thing that has been so damaging to the credibility of the media. And I would argue we're also suffering as a result of this syndrome, a crisis in confidence in all of our institutions. So here we have people at home not trusting what they see and hear and read in the media especially when the media appears to be taking sides, especially prematurely on an issue. We could go a long way in developing trust if we covered things fairly and in a neutral or non-biased fashion gave each side their due. But there's a crisis in confidence with the media. There's also a lack of confidence in our institutions, such as the Department of Justice. People now know that charges will not be pursued equally, depending on who the charges are against, where they politically sit, or perhaps if there are powerful connections in the government associated with that person. People don't trust their political figures, their members of Congress. People don't trust health officials. Let's talk about the top health officials in this country saying, don't wear masks, they don't work, and doing the 182, you must wear masks, they absolutely work. And then those same people call the public crazy for not knowing what to believe or not understanding which was the lie and which may be the truth, not realizing that they're the ones that created that crisis and confidence. So across the board, 
There's a crisis in confidence everywhere you look, created by those in power, those who are trying to pull strings and influence how we think, and they don't understand, or they pretend not to understand, why people are confused or why people mistrust the information that they're getting today. One thing you can trust is the reporting that I do on my weekly Sunday television program, Full Measure. As I like to say, it's reporting done the old-fashioned way, just kind of like it used to be done, different viewpoints. We hear from different people. We don't shove an opinion down your throat and force you or try to force you to believe it. You can think what you want after you hear it. You'll hear both sides of controversies. We'll take a look at what's coming up on this week's Full Measure right after a short break. What's coming up this week on Full Measure, Sunday, November 22nd, more original reporting and off-narrative news, news reported and topics reported kind of like it used to be when news was more down the middle, fact-based, looking at reporting things that powerful interests perhaps do not want us to report or weren't pushing us to report, off-narrative, off-the-talking points. What do we have? First of all, we have a fascinating story, our cover story by Lisa Fletcher. I didn't know really anything about this topic before Lisa investigated it. It's a look at the competition for rare earth minerals and how we are mining the deep sea for these elements that it turns out are used in all kinds of high technology. They're used in our weapon systems. And as such, this is a race that's very important according to experts, to our national security. And as Lisa tells us, it's particularly important when it comes to our competitive posture with China because China is supposedly leading the way in the mining for rare earth minerals in the deep sea. We are trying to play catch up. There are a lot of challenges, but it's something that our experts think is very important to us in a lot of different ways, which she'll describe. I'm also doing a story this week. You know, I love follow the money. I love looking at waste, fraud, and abuse of our tax dollars, not because I like the result, but I think that these are stories that are very meaningful to many Americans who want to know how their tax money is being spent or perhaps how it's being misspent. And this is something that news organizations used to do a lot of. In fact, when I worked at CBS News for a couple of years, I had a series I did every Friday and sometimes twice a week when Rick Kaplan was the executive producer. He knew these were such popular segments. So we did follow the money. I followed the taxpayer spending of congressional earmarks, both Democrat and Republican expenditures that were lost to what some would say is frivolous spending and sometimes even criminal fraud and waste and abuse. And so I continue to do follow the money stories on my independent television program. This time I'm looking at the coronavirus relief money. You know, with all of that money going around, we're talking about $2.6 trillion in the CARES Act alone, emergency assistance. CARES, by the way, stands for Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security. And you know, a big part of that, the one you've probably heard the most about, is the Paycheck Protection Program. They call it PPP, part of the CARES Act, part of the $2.6 trillion. That part is $659 billion for payroll and expenses for small businesses to try to keep them going. The question I wanted to look at with all this money going out the door, and you know, even with far smaller expenditures, it's hard for the government, 
if not impossible, to track where it's going. Sometimes they don't even bother to try. So I wanted to know who's tracking this money for the coronavirus aid, relief, and economic security. And one of the agencies that's looking into some of it, because this is a divided duty, still probably not enough people looking into it, but among the groups that are is the General Accountability Office. And in full measure this week, I speak to Timothy Persons, who is um, an official with GAO and was kind of telling us how their oversight is working. So I wanted to know what they found so far, very early on in these early months, in terms of potential improper spending. And one thing that he's already flagged was the head of the GAO testified about this. The IRS knowingly sent out, now wait for it, $1.4 billion in coronavirus relief payments to 1.1 million dead people. I'm not kidding. And what's really remarkable is when the head of the GAO in June testified about this before Congress, his name is Gene Dodaro, if I've said his name correctly, his own mother got one of these payments, although she had died more than two years before. How could this happen? Well, the GAO head testified that the IRS determined it did not have the legal authority to deny payments to anyone who filed a return for 2019, even if they were deceased. He went on to explain in his testimony that the IRS initially determined that deceased people or anybody who filed a return in 2019 or as far back as 2018 should be paid even if they were now dead. When that became known publicly, the Treasury Department then supposedly reevaluated its position among the bad publicity and stopped it. And I'm not clear, actually, whether that means money was paid back. I tend to think not. I'm not sure who that money went to if the 1.1 million people were deceased, but $1.4 billion went out. I'm not sure who got it. So when we're talking about trillions of dollars overall for this coronavirus relief spending and more on the way, there are opposing concerns, as I've learned. This is the same with hurricane relief money and a lot of federal expenditures. They want to get the money out the door as fast as they can to help people, but they also at the same time need to try to do what they can to make sure it's not lost to waste, fraud, and abuse, and that is the tough part. So there is a lot of oversight, not just with GAO. There are inspectors general looking into this. There are criminal prosecutors, and I learned that the Justice Department has already charged dozens of people. In fact, cumulatively, as of maybe about a month ago, four dozen people have been charged with trying to steal $175 million through that PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. So here are a couple of the cases that I tracked down. One is a former NFL player, Josh Bellamy, He's accused of fraud after getting more than $1.2 million in coronavirus relief money. Prosecutors in charging him said that he bought $104,000 in luxury items and jewelry at places like Dior and Gucci. They claimed that he spent $62,000 at the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. And they say he applied for coronavirus money for family members and friends, 10 more, are charged in the same alleged scheme involving a total of 90 
fraudulent applications say prosecutors worth more than $24 million. Now, all the people that I'm talking about in the story, um, including the ones I'll be mentioning in a moment, have either pleaded not guilty or are awaiting a court date to enter a plea. So nobody has admitted guilt. And I want to be sure we have that caveat in there. Another case involves a reality TV star named Maurice Mo Fain of the television show Love and Hip Hop Atlanta. Prosecutors say he got $3.7 million tax dollars for a business he has that he calls Flame Trucking. And they say that he used $1.5 million of his coronavirus relief money to buy a Rolls Royce, diamonds and other jewelry, and make $40,000 in child support payments. Again, none of these people have admitted guilt, and they've either pleaded not guilty or are awaiting a plea. Then there's also David Hines, who allegedly used $3.9 million in COVID relief funds to buy, in part, a $318,000 Lamborghini sports car and $8,500 worth of jewelry and go on a $4,600 shopping spree at Saks Fifth Avenue. I know what you're thinking. How do they get the money? Is this just a matter of filling out an application and making up facts and saying this is what you deserve? How does that much money go out the door without a check, without a balance? And they did catch these people in these alleged crimes, but doesn't it make you wonder how many they might not have caught? And if there are far many more maybe that didn't involve millions and millions apiece, maybe smaller amounts that add up, but maybe thousands and thousands of people have gotten the money improperly? It's certainly a good question to ask. And then the last story that will be on full measure this Sunday is a look at some of the biggest, most egregious media mistakes in the era of Trump, as I like to say. I've been tracking those really since about 2016 and then after Trump was elected, of course, as the pace of the false reporting on President Trump picked up by formerly well-respected news outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post. I'm putting some of those together because this is what I lay out and talk about in my new book, which comes out Tuesday, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. I also talk about this really disturbing trend on the internet and social media where big tech companies are doing what I call fake fact checks and curating of our information to try to shape public opinion. They're censoring and banning people, censoring information as if they are experts in things that they can't possibly know about, but proclaiming these things to be not true, proclaiming opinions to be false, or predictions and comments about what may happen in the future, such as when predictions there could be election fraud, stepping in and saying that's false, although they can't really tell the future like they're pretending to. This is an outrageous development, and it's covered in the book Slanted as well. So I hope you'll consider pre-ordering a copy today. But regardless, you'll see a little chunk of that on Full Measure Sunday. If you miss the TV program or you don't know where to watch it, you can always go to fullmeasure.news because we post those segments after about noon on Sundays. You can watch them, watch those replays right there online. You can also watch fullmeasure.news slash live at 9.30 Eastern Time every Sunday and watch it online live if you don't know where to find it on TV. As always, do your own research, make up your own mind, 
Think for yourself. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you will leave a good review, share it with your friends, and subscribe to Full Measure After Hours wherever you like to listen. Also, check out my other podcast, the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast, brought to you by justthenews.com, but also available wherever you like to listen. Again, don't forget to pre-order Slanted. It comes out on Tuesday. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening.